Off the Bench is a podcast created by ASCLS that will discuss the scientific and not so scientific ideas in laboratory medicine. We are joined by members of ASCLS, fellow scientists, educators, and researchers, along with those interested in the profession. We share ideas and talk nerdy. Hello, and welcome back to the Off the Bench podcast. I am one of your hosts, Sophia Chandrasekhar, and today I am joined by my wonderful co-host, uh, Justin Hannenberg. Hey, everyone. And our guest speaker for today, Neva Parker from White Labs. Hi, everybody. So what is White Labs? Uh, White Labs is a biotechnology company providing liquid yeast cultures, analytical services, and consulting for the fermented beverage industry established in San Diego, California in 1995. Neva Parker started her career with White Labs in 2003 as a lab technician and is currently director of operations overseeing three global manufacturing facilities. Neva, could you tell us a bit, little bit more about White Labs? Yeah, absolutely. Um, thank you for that introduction, Sophia. Um, you know, White Labs is an interesting company. Uh, as you mentioned, I started here in 2003, and um, one of the owners of White Labs, Chris White, uh, the company's namesake, uh, was actually a doing his PhD studies at UC San Diego. So we're based out of San Diego, where this is where our headquarters is. And, um, you know, he was really looking at pharma, pharmaceutical. And because craft brewing was kind of growing in San Diego, he got really interested in that. And he was studying uh, Pekia Pastoris uh, back in the day. And that sort of spurred his love and knowledge of yeast in general. And uh, he learned how to homebrew from some local homebrewers and local homebrew shop here in San Diego. And that really just kind of spurred his passion for not only the brewing industry itself, but just ferment fermentation and fermented beverages. And that's why, you know, over the years, we've really kind of stuck with that kind of mantra. Um, we love the science that's really important to us. But we're also in this industry, which is, um, you know, more casual, there's a, really a different feel to it. And um, beer brewing in general is a is a very important art form for a lot of people. Brewers really do consider themselves, you know, artists in a number of ways, uh, creating recipes and, you know, new styles of beers and that sort of thing. So um, it's it's been an important mission for us over the decades to really put those two things together and, you know, work with the science side as well as the art side and the kind of fun side. So it's kind of the best of both, both worlds. And I see that very clearly when looking at your <clears throat> beer listing right now of having the scientist series and the style series. So right. it seems from top to bottom that that's very much where Light Labs is, is combining the art and the science. Yes, absolutely. And it's kind of a different thing for us. I mean, there are certainly other yeast manufacturers out there that are doing similar things working in the beer industry. Um, but one of the big things we wanted to do was be able to um, showcase the yeast in a way that made sense to people. Uh, because right now, you know, we have a yeast collection of you know, hundreds of different strains. And we talk about how those strains are different, you know, genetically they're different, obviously, but, you know, they produce different flavor and aroma characteristics in fermentation. Why does that matter to a brewer? And it was always just like talk, like, yeah, it, it produces these flavor compounds, these aroma compounds, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and we felt that it was important to be able to brew our own beer, 
serve our own beer so that the public could come in and actually taste and experience those things that we would always talk about. Um, so when we started brewing beer, uh, that was in 2012. Um, again, we wanted to just kind of keep with those science roots. So we named a lot of those core beers after important fermentation scientists. So with fermentation, as someone who knows nothing about home brewing, what, what's some terminology I should know? What's, what are the basics basically? Um, there are a few things uh, when you're starting uh, that you should know or things that you should be familiar with. Um, one of them is um, wort. Wort is basically um, sugar water. So in any beer recipe, the base ingredient is malted barley. Um, and brewers will take that malted barley, they'll steep it in a specific temperature water in order to uh, break down the complex carbohydrates in the malted barley and create fermentable sugars. So we're basically causing enzymatic reactions to break down the carbohydrates. And then we create, you know, maltose, maltotriose, which is really the biggest thing that brewers yeast can consume. Um, glucose, sometimes sucrose. I mean, they can consume simple sugars, um, but anything that's malt-based will be glucose, maltose, maltotriose. And um, that is essentially wort. So it's the beer before the yeast is added. And we like to use a, a saying around white labs, um, beer without yeast would just be bittersweet. So it's basically just sugar water and maybe some hops for that bittering component. Um, and then you add the yeast and it does all the magic. So um, wort is a big one. Uh, brewers will use the term gravity and, you know, in scientific terms, we're really talking about specific gravity. So the density of that wort, um, we need to know the sugar content. That's how, you know, we get calculations for alcohol and things like that. Um, fermentation itself is basically just yeast metabolism without oxygen. Um, yeast will need oxygen at the beginning of fermentation in order just to promote growth and metabolic activity. But after that, fermentation will take over. And in, in any fermentation, you're basically gonna take those metabolites and create something and CO2. Um, and it's the same thing with beer. We're taking all of these sugars, the yeast are consuming them and producing carbon dioxide and ethanol. Um, Pitching is another big one in our industry. And it sounds like a weird term um, to pitch is to basically add yeast to your wort or whatever you're using as your base. Um, so it's just like inoculating. Uh, winemakers will say inoculation. Uh, brewers will call it pitching. Uh, so a lot of our terminology and a lot of our, you know, like marketing things are are related to like pitch or pitching or, you know, something like that. So um, those are some of the big ones. Um, I know you had asked about uh, like starters and things like that. So you'll see that in the home brewing community a lot, which just means they'll take a culture of yeast that they purchase from a homebrew store or a yeast supplier and they'll make what they call a starter, which is just sort of like a mini propagation. It helps to take the culture that they have and kind of activate it a little bit before they add it to their wort uh, so that they have a more successful fermentation. 
Okay. So I guess why, why does yeast matter? Like, I know that they're important for fermentation, obviously, because they're the ones who are doing the fermenting, but do certain kinds of yeast matter more over others? Um, I know you guys have different strains and I guess are some more active than others. Do some do different things? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I find that yeast is sort of the unsung hero of fermented beverages. Uh, I still get the question a lot from people that are like, well, wait a second, do you need yeast to make wine or vodka or whatever it is? And, you know, it's, for me, it's a funny question because I just live in that. But for the average person, they may not know. Yeast is a critical ingredient for any alcoholic beverage because it produces ethanol. So that's the number one thing. Um, and obviously, there are many different strains and alcohol is not the only thing. And particularly to a brewer, the strain type is a big part of their recipe development. Um, there are certain collections of strains, if you will. There are the ale strains, which will produce things like, you know, a pale ale, an IPA, a brown ale, um, a red, a hazy, um, you know, anything like that. And there's the lager strains, Pilsner, American lager, like your average light lager. So those are technically different. And that just really is in the way that they ferment. They tolerate different temperatures. Um, so that's one big difference. So that strain selection is important depending on the style that you're making because of that. This is eye-opening for me because a lot of times when I hear about crafting beer, there's a lot of focus on hops and the different kinds of hops or where they come from. And the uh, We have a, a decent variety in the US from what I understand. This is new for me in hearing how much the yeast matters. Now I knew that that was an important component to beer, but what I'm picking up here is just how much that's a very critical and thought out process. The, your choice in yeast is very intentional. So it keeps me, I have this, I have a funny question. So I'm just gonna ask it. Do you yeah. have a favorite yeah. kind of yeast that you like to work with? Yeah, I I actually do. And I mean, we have a lot of strains, so it, it really kind of depends. But there, there are particular ones that I prefer because of their um, flavor contribution, but also their activity, like how quickly they can ferment and how robust they are. So those are some of the things that like a brewer would consider. Um, hops are great. I mean, every ingredient is important right but hops right now tend to be that sort of like romanticized piece of beer that everyone's talking about like what hops are you using it's you know they're making these like single hop beers and I think that's cool no one out there is really going let's make this like beer based around this yeast because it's just not as cool sounding um and we're trying to make it cool but uh yeah absolutely I I've got a couple that that I really like just kind of depending on the style and I like them because of the types of like aroma compounds they produce in a beer and it's really just like my own like taste preference and why I like them um but those are the same kinds of things that a, a brewer would be looking for like does this beer um metabolize in a way that creates a beer that I enjoy? Does it work well with my other ingredients and the style that I'm trying to produce? And also like from a production standpoint, does it ferment well? There are some strains out there that can be like very beautiful in, in their like results um, in the finished beer, but they're really hard 
to ferment and they're hard for a brewer to work with because they don't meet timelines. You got to, you know, kind of baby them a little bit and, and that's, can be difficult. So uh, there's a lot of different things. They're, they're live. And I think that's one of the challenges. It's the only ingredient in beer that's alive when you introduce it. So you got to kind of treat it nicely so that it does what you want it to do. That leads me into a couple other lab questions too, of um, because you are dealing with basically biological reagents and things mm-hmm. that can, you know, they are alive. You have to treat them well, and they can change over over time. So, I'm thinking some things of my quality control. What do you do as far as say, you know, I'm thinking like lot to lot variability. Um, if you're getting one batch of the yeast, making sure that it's not, you know, is there variance to another batch? Um, how long does yeast? Can you use a a certain set of yeast for a certain amount of time before it starts to give out and decide it wants to retire and bring in somebody new? Yep. Yeah. I, those are all great questions. Um, as far as our, our part goes, uh, when we're propagating the yeast, we have a very strict set of quality control measures that we're looking for. Um, you know, not only are we looking at all the pieces that are going into the, the media, for that yeast, we've got to make sure all the nutrient levels are there, the oxygen levels are there to promote really healthy yeast growth. Um, we look at glycogen levels too to ensure that there is um, enough energy, <laughs> I guess, if you will, for the yeast by the time we, you know, package it for a customer, because it may not be used right away because it's live. It's just so much more perishable than, you know, a dry yeast, like a baker's yeast that you might buy at the grocery store or something, which has like a three-year shelf life. You know, we don't have that with a live culture. The viability is going to decline pretty significantly and it's got to be stored cold. So there's all these challenges that we deal with um, that we really try to work to minimize through our quality control process as much as possible. So it is some of the things that feed into the propagation and keeping those at a really consistent and predictable level. But, you know, we'll, we'll monitor viability over the course of the propagation. We'll also uh, look at glycogen. As I said, we look at yield. So when we're doing a propagation, we, we should have a fairly predictable amount of yeast that we can collect. If we don't, then we can look back at the process and go, okay, what happened? Like, why did we get less this time? Or why did we get so much more this time? What did we do differently? Um, so it's trying to control that process um, pretty tightly. Um, and then of course, you know, our final product, we look at purity. We use uh, qPCR to um, detect microorganisms that shouldn't be present. Um, and that's important for a brewer because other organisms could contaminate the beer. It could create off flavors, things that they don't want in their fermentation. Um, So we'll look at those things. Um, We'll look at cell concentration of just the whole culture. So that's also predictable for a brewer because the amount of yeast they're adding to their beer also matters. Well, it sounds like we're working with different strains as well that you may have different expectations for how long something can grow, so what your what kind of cell yield you can have. Um, so, do you set parameters specifically for individual yeast strains on what is going to be acceptable for you? Yeah, we do, and typically the way that works because we're propagating so many different strain types on any given day or in any given week, um, we put them into groups. So we have certain groups of strains that we know we can have very similar expectations for. Um, and those will have a 
a specific propagation profile. This other group might have a different propagation profile and it all uh, varies in terms of like oxygen level, growth timelines, um, when we start um, cooling the propagation so we can collect the yeast. So there are a lot of different things that we can control. Um, and, you know, those are all things that we continue to optimize as we go as well. And, you know, technology really helps us kind of monitor those things and, and better control them. But yeah, absolutely. So you keep saying that you have like tons and tons of strains. So you guys have a yeast bank and that's actually what drew me into trying to reach out to you guys to talk about your process. What is your yeast bank? Is it literally just like a a huge warehouse full of a bunch of yeast strains? Like, do they, where do they live? Do they live in jars? Do they live in little <laughs> It feels like a warehouse, but in reality, it's just um, a minus 80 freezer. So our entire collection is stored um, at minus 80 and um, it's stored on, you know, a glycerol media. So we have just little cryo vials. Um, inside. And because we have multiple facilities, we duplicate the bank across all the facilities so that we have a back stock. Um, we really only work from the primary stocks in San Diego so that we can control any kind of like potential genetic drift from, you know, generations of use and things like that. Um, but we do carry the collection at our other sites as a backup and safekeeping. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's amazing how, how little space that many strains can take in, in those cryo vials. And, you know, we go back and maintain them annually. We do routine checks on them, ensure that the strains that we're working with are still the same as the original stocks that we keep um, so that we can maintain the consistency of those strains over time. So you, you mentioned genetic drift. I guess is that something that home brewers may also have to potentially watch out for? Like if say, say they have a starter and they just kind of keep using it for ages. I have a friend who has a bread start that she's had for like four years now and still going strong. She feeds it, yeah. it, like cleans it all the time. But yeah. How does that usually it's, affect stuff? Yeah, it's an interesting thing because uh, theoretically you could go forever <laughs> using one single strain, you know, like your friend does with her bread. And I know a lot of like bakers will do that with sourdough starters and um, things like that. You just kind of take it and you just keep carrying it on and on and on and on. Um, with brewers yeast specifically, it's a lot more sensitive. And, um, you know, one of the, one of the other terms I didn't mention earlier is generations. We call a generation anytime a yeast culture is fermenting. So, you know, when we send a yeast out to a, a brewer, that's gen zero. It hasn't like ever gone through fermentation before. So a brewer will use it the first time. And that'll be their first generation. They'll collect that at the end of their beer fermentation and they'll use it again and again and again. So every subsequent use is another generation. And usually we recommend eight to 10 generations. So eight to 10 uses of a single culture before going back to the stock, you know, whether you're a home brewer or a professional. And that's simply because of just the stress applied to the yeast during that fermentation. 
it can eventually cause some mutations, you know, genetic drift. And it really depends on the conditions, the fermentation conditions. If it's optimal every time, you can probably go a hundred generations and have no changes or very insignificant changes. I mean, something that you wouldn't be able to like detect from like a sensory perspective, but most fermentation conditions aren't optimal. So you're always going to get that drift. Um, and that's really what we're dealing with, with, with something like, um, bread making, because it's less stressful, there's not the alcohol, there's not, you know, some of these other stressors that are applied to the yeast in, in like a food fermentation. Um, a lot of times you like, you can use those for just so much longer than you can with beer and with beer, because it's so like sensory driven. If you get any changes, it can really change the taste of the beer. And for like a production brewery that's making like a brand and it needs to be the same every time, that's really important. You can't have the yeast kind of changing up on you and doing something different all of a sudden. That actually makes um, some of my own personal experience with home brewing, not beer though, a lot. it makes it a lot more sense. Um, my husband during COVID or during the main first part of the pandemic, he was like, I'm going to make kombucha and decided that he was going to make kombucha from like uh, like a bottle, like the SCOBY and everything. I want to say we went through probably 13 generations using the terminology, went at least 13 generations. We ended up calling them like the junior, like uh, the next junior prize, the next generation, like other like really yeah. cheesy names. And I think part of the, like partway through one time he added the tea and the tea was too hot and everything turned <laughs> acidic like it tasted like vinegar like we we're just drinking apple cider vinegar or like tea vinegar for the next four or five and he was like I think my scoby died I can't do it yeah anymore. yeah and well and I think uh kombucha is even more challenging because it's mixed culture fermentation so you're not just dealing with one organism you're dealing with like a, a bunch of organisms and they've all got to work together too and so it, like you throw that whole balance off and you got something that's less drinkable than what you were expecting. So that's another level of, of challenge that you have to deal with. <laughs> Good to know. Good to know. Now, I have not gotten involved into any kind of home brewing. I've thought about it. It's been interesting. <laughs> it's just one where I haven't had necessarily the process or the space to really be starting up that project. But now I'm taking interest because it sounds like this really fun cross between art and science. And then there's some play involved. And, you know, it, I can think of uh, thinking I might be pretty good at it with just having some level of scientific practice under my belt um, to getting some of it, having some of those quality control measures down. But one of the things I'm interested in then too is we're talking some bit of the extra sensitivity in dealing with either kombucha or beer and some of these other kinds of solutions that require fermentation. What kind of instrumentation or what are your tools that you use in, um, in growing the yeast, in ensuring that there is not genetic drift? What, what are some of the tools that you're using in your everyday practice? Um, yeah, it's, it's kind of funny because <laughs> we kind of joke about this a lot with with yeast propagation, there hasn't been a lot of like technology or anything new happening in probably hundreds of years. Like it's, it's very basic microbiology. And that's kind of the funny thing about it. Um, you would think that there would be all these novel things, especially, you know, for us. I mean, I, I think at 
other companies doing, you know, research and different things. Yeah. There's probably a lot more like high tech practices that are happening, but microbiology is microbiology. There hasn't been too many advances in microbiology over the years and particularly in brewing science, there hasn't been a lot of advancements when it comes to, um, the types of things that, that we've been doing. So, you know, I would say we work a lot on that because we want to be really on that cutting edge of technology and what we can do with science. Um, right now we, we do a lot of just selected media plating. That's a lot of what we've done for decades. Um, in the last two years, we sort of shifted a lot of our, um, quality control testing and, and contamination detection to PCR. And that's been a challenge in itself because we are working with so many different yeast strains. So how do you really, how do you really do PCR unless you're doing exclusion? Like we would need our whole genetic map for every strain to know whether something else is there or not. Um, so we ended up partnering with a, another company that was doing just, you know, rapid PCR and, um, developing a specific sort of proprietary kit to help us do testing on our yeast through qPCR. And that has been just such a long journey because of all the, you know, validation testing we've been having to do and all the different strains and the sensitivity levels. So that's one big thing that I would say that we have moved on in the last two years is, is moving away from just standard microbiology to, um, you know, molecular. So we're looking at qPCR and that's been great for us. And I would say we're not in full implementation of that yet because there's still little tweaks here and there that we have to do um, to make sure that it's easy for a tech to run across the board without having to really look at the data and, and interpret the data. Um, so I, I think once we're really complete with that, that's gonna be huge. Um, and it's, that's one of the biggest accomplishments I think we've made. Um, the other part of our business too, aside from yeast though, is we do have a full service analytical laboratory um, that's sort of a third party for brewers, brewers, kombucha makers, cider, wineries, whoever, if they want analysis. So there's a lot of equipment there. Um, we run um, alcohol analysis. Obviously, that's a big one in our industry. People want to know what their their alcohol is. We can also run flavor profiles. So we can look at uh, flavor active compounds in beverages. Um, there's a, a collection of ester compounds, phenolic compounds. Um, we look at bisphenol diketone. So those types of things will run on a, a GC. Um, so we have equipment like that. Um, we have an HPLC, which we use mostly for, uh, like protein analysis and nutritional label analysis. Um, so for, for any brewers that require nutritional labels, they can send those to us. We can run that full analysis, carbohydrates, um, calories, um, you know, sugar content, all that stuff. So those are the kinds of things that we're looking for, um, in our analytical laboratory, aside from what we're doing on the yeast side and PCR. That's, everyone's doing PCR these days. 
In talking about the analytical lab part of things, I'm also curious to see what kind of regulatory environment that you have to respond to. Certainly for those of us in healthcare, highly regulated industry, lots of things to consider, lots of mechanisms in place, but going over into something that I guess we into brewing science or food science, I'm not familiar with that space. Um, do you have to do things like peer group proficiency testing, um, regulatory inspections, things to that nature? Yeah, it's it's a kind of a conundrum. Beer has sort of fallen under the radar when it comes to any kind of like regulatory body that's saying there are certain types of um, analysis that are required or certain certifications that are required. Um, for us specifically, because we're manufacturing a product like yeast, um, we fall under FDA food processing guidance. So so. For us, we have to do that. For brewers, less so. I think some states will have some like health regulations. Um, you know, when I was talking about the nutritional labeling, that was not something that that brewers were required to do before to provide a nutritional label on a beer. And um, I want to say three or four years ago, that was something that came down the pipeline. That if you had, well, there were specific laws around it. If you had a brew pub. So if you were a brewery that also had a restaurant um, and you served the beer there, you were required to provide nutritional information on the beer. Um, so that's really as far as the regulation goes. Uh, there are certain states that require an independent lab to analyze your alcohol content for your labels. Um, but other than that, it hasn't been a highly regulated industry in terms of um, analysis and, you know, validating that anything is to specific kinds of guidance. Um, I, I think that that will change. And, you know, we have worked a number of years to kind of be prepared for that um, and understanding what, what the regulations might be and how we'd fit into that. Um, so I, I think it will come. It's just not something that has been very forthcoming just yet. Now I've had some questions come up um, in thoughts of where can, for those of us that are medical laboratory sciences, you know, thinking of, so at times people think of like what kind of alternate career paths might be available to me. Um, you know, so we have a certain, you know, we have a certain trajectory within the healthcare space, but sometimes, you know, our interests change or we might want to try something new. And, Brewing science seems to be one of those areas where there might be some there might be some room. Um, in looking for someone as a scientist in your team, what are some of the qualities that you're looking for? Um, you know, we look for someone that has some bench experience, especially if we're we're looking to add to either of our laboratories. So having some of that experience um, is really helpful. What we do specifically is pretty difficult to have that experience in some of it is sort of all you know learning on the go um so we we look for some qualities that are related but maybe not exact matches it i think it would just be hard unless you came from another yeast company <laughs> um you know but having some analytical background having some bench work experience um is really really helpful and i would say that's true of not only us but any 
brewing science program or any brewery that might be looking for, um, you know, someone with a lab background to operate any of their laboratories. And, and I would say too, in, in my time with White Labs, having labs within a brewery, like a brewery that actually has their own lab has grown significantly. I, when I first started, very few breweries had their own labs unless they were very big regional breweries like, you know, Boston beer, things like that. Um, but now I think there's more emphasis on the need for someone in the sciences to run quality control programs and really have a good understanding of microbiology in general. Um, and I, I think a microbiology background is hugely beneficial in, in our industry, um, as is, you know, like chemistry. I mean, they, they all can apply. Um, and really, if you're willing to learn, you can take the initiative, you don't mind kind of doing some grunt work for a while and, and just kind of learning what you need to do and figuring those things out. It's, it's a really fun and um, it, it's a fun industry. And I, I think you get a lot out of it because it's just a great community to work in. It does sound like a lot of fun and a creative area as well with that, especially talking about the combinations and different kinds of yeast and things to consider on what to make for a tasty brew, which leads me to the other question on potential perks here. Do you get to taste your final product? Is that part of your quality control is a taste test? We do. We have a weekly sensory panel, so we, we've got to make sensory sure all the beer that, that we're producing tastes good. <laughs> and meets all of our specifications. So yeah, there is a weekly sensory. Um, every now and again, too, we'll get uh, customers who drop off samples that need a sensory evaluation. So we'll sit down with the panel and you know kind of walk through those as well. Um, so we've tasted some interesting things over the years, that's for sure. <laughs> interesting is the operative word. I was sitting with that. Interesting. That could go in either direction. Some things that are really good or some things that are, stick out for other reasons. Yes. I'll leave you with that. Okay. <laughs> What's the most interesting thing you have experienced during these sensory panels? Like, Oh, um, one year I was judging, uh, for the great American beer festival actually. And, um, they everything is anonymous so they pour you the beers and i mean they're pretty serious sessions you sit around and i mean these are real things that we do we're judging beer it's very professional um but you know they have people who bring you the beers and stewards they're called and they set them in front of you you have like a whole row of beers and they're all numbered and you write your judging notes and you score them and you do your things and um one time I had a beer come and it was blue, like completely blue. And I was like, uh, what is this beer? Why is it this color? <laughs> what is in it? You kind of read the, you know, special ingredients. It's like, blah, 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 lavender. And I swear to God, I wanted to like it. It like looked so pretty, but it tasted like soap to me. <laughs> it's like this <laughs> It tastes like soap. And I think it was like something lavender, you know, da, 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 da. So it's like, oh gosh, I, I'm not sure. I don't love this. I don't love this beer. And I try to, you know, end it with something nice. Like it's just a really pretty color. <laughs> I would never drink this. <laughs> so I, I, that was interesting. 
<laughs> it sounds <laughs> so nice. There's like a lavender, lavender, anything I feel like sounds nice. But then just thinking about other flavors of beer with lavender, I can see how it's very, it can taste like soap. I can. Yeah. Mm. I mean, it was blue, completely blue. <laughs> that would be really strange to get a pour of a blue beer or really any color. I, yeah. I'm interested. Mm, like, yeah. I definitely want to experience that one day, but maybe not says tasting as soap. But yeah. <laughs> Hopefully not. <laughs> Hopefully not. So speaking of interesting things, one question I want to ask was, what is your favorite fermented food and what is your favorite fermented drink? And this is a question I kind of want to like go all around. So Justin, I want your opinion as well. All right. Shall I start? Um, my favorite fermented food has to be some sort of pickled thing, whatever that may be. Kimchi. I love kimchi. I, I would eat that all day. I used to eat kimchi like when I was like four or five, just straight out of the jar with my grandpa. Like I still remember that. I love kimchi. Um, so I, I think that would have to be it um, on the food side. Um, my favorite fermented drink. Uh, I mean, there's so many. <laughs> right now, right now I'm really into hard kombucha. So I, that's sort of a new thing for me. I mean, it's been around for some time, but, um, I just like hard kombucha. It's light. If you get a good one, I think it's just light. It's somewhat flavorful. It's a little bit more flavorful than like a seltzer or something. It just doesn't seem it's filling as beer sometimes. So I like hard kombucha. I was going to mention kimchi as well. I am also one to eat it right from the jar. It Sometimes it doesn't make it all the way home from the store with me. All kinds of kimchi, different flavors and um, spices with it too. I just love it. Um, but I, I'm not as much a fan of kombucha. I've tried a number of times. I just can't quite get it onto my palate to say, you know, I see why other people like it. Not for me. So you can have it. It's okay. Um, <laughs> I'll take it. <laughs> on the other hand, I am, it's been a few years now and it's summertime. I'm always reminded that I'm still looking for that Pilsner that I, that, that I can always go back to. Um, I found a couple that are close, but I'm just looking for that right one that's light, crisp and refreshing and just, yeah, perfect for summertime. I think for me, I mean, kimchi is the, you know, it's always top tier, in my opinion, for, for fermented foods. But I, this might be slightly controversial. I really like Vegemite. Like I love mm. Vegemite on toast. I don't know what that I, is. So I mean, what is Vegemite? So Vegemite is, um, according to Google, because I had to look it up because I was like, I'm pretty sure this is fermented if I remember. It is, um, it's a food spread made from leftover brewer's yeast extract. I'm going to technically count that as fermented because it's the leftover parts of the- It's the actual okay. yeast, yeah. Yeah, the actual <laughs> yeast. Um, I don't know why it reminds me of a flavor in some Chinese food, I cannot place it for the life of me, but I adore it. I will spread Vegemite, like a thin layer of Vegemite. I will have, I'll make excuses, like put Vegemite on like toast or something. <laughs> I'm really weird. Um, that is controversial. That is controversial. <laughs> quite, if you ever, if you ever try it, Justin, put a very, very thin layer on bread, very thin, like where you can still see the bread underneath, kind of like scrape it across. It's very salty. And have it with a bit of butter. It's really good. 
if I find it somewhere and it's on a menu, I'll give it a try. I don't know if I'm going to go down to Koreatown or is it in try it, to find it. Yeah, it's so it's it's found. I found mine at Harris Cedar. I've had my jar. I, I don't know if this is actually good or not. I've had it for a couple of years and it's still good. Like it's it's it is just for it's just yeast extract. That's it. It is thick. It is a yeah. paste. It's usually not on food. I would say I don't I haven't found it on a restaurant menu anywhere, but it's interesting. I'm going to go look this up. Okay. <laughs> Veggie. I feel like it's Veggie one of those light. things that you either, yeah, you either love or hate. So yeah. So right. a very well, we'll see on which side of this. Yeah. We'll see which side of the fence it sits on. I'm thinking it yeah. might go over towards the Sriracha side. We'll find out. Oh, are, are you for Sriracha against Sriracha? Another one like kombucha, kombucha where, you know what, if you like it, I get it, but it's not for me. So you can have it. That's fair. I will take all the kombucha from you because that's actually my favorite. You can have all the kombucha and sriracha you like. It's okay. I'll just keep looking for that perfect pilsner. Do you have a pilsner with white labs? We do. Yeah. It's really good, actually. You might have to come down to San Diego and try it. Where in San Diego are you? Um, Miramar, the Miramar area. Used to work down there. Yeah. Yeah. Come down. We're open. Tuesday through Sunday. Okay. <laughs> and then I know you guys also have one on the East Coast because I saw it in Asheville. And we do. I think it's also a restaurant, if I remember. It's, it's like a, a restaurant. restaurant and, yeah. Uh, it's a restaurant and production facility. So we have duplicated, you know, kind of our manufacturing from San Diego to Asheville. And then we added on this restaurant component and they actually do wood fired pizzas and all the pizza dough mm. is fermented with our yeast as well. It's Ooh. Really good. Ooh, yeah. fermentation. And it's really good. And oh, we have a um, lactobacillus brined French fries. I mean, there's all kinds of things. It's so yummy. So you also have a science menu at the restaurant. Yes. Oh, okay. It's all about the science. That's amazing. <laughs> this is that's like all of our nerdy dreams come true. I feel like a restaurant yes. is all about the science. I think North Carolina chapter has to have a meeting there. I want one so bad. The problem is our state is long and skinny. So then the place <laughs> everyone meets is in the middle, which is the triangle. And no offense to the triangles that live here. There's not much going. Like there's there's some there's some breweries here. Compared to Asheville, which is like, you know, you could walk down a street and you've yeah. hit five on one street on yeah. just one side of one street. It does not compare. Asheville's a little if you, intense. If you ever want to go to Asheville and have a meeting at White Labs, we have event space as well. And we can do a tour and a little fermented pairing. Okay. I mean, you should think about it. You should think about it. It would be fun. So just as a reminder too, something like a brewery tour could be used for continuing education credits. As long as you set up the objectives in what you'll have for the session and what you're looking to get out of the tour, and that's then done within the hour, you can have that pace approved for credits. And a number of states have done this, thank you to Colorado for starting the trend, of having this as a way for state chapters to getting together. So definitely something to consider as well. Good point. Very good point. Thank you so much, Justin, because I forgot about that. Is there anything that you're really excited about for this upcoming year? Any new projects on the horizon? Oh my gosh. Yeah, so many things. 
Yes, so we will be soon entering into a project with a laboratory in Belgium to look at some hybrid, like natural hybrid yeasts and how those might um, play into you know, a brewing market. So we're gonna look at a few different ones and, and see what we like. So that should be fun. Um, yeah, they're natural hybrids, so they're technically not GMO and um, should be interesting to see some traditional brewing strains and then some non-traditional brewing strains. Um, and, you know, we'll kind of work with our R&D team to see what we think of them and get those um, also into our brewery and uh, put some of that stuff on the tasting room so that people can try it out and see if they like it. That sounds really exciting. And I have noticed too, that you keep an archive of the different beers that you've gone through too. So any of those big beer enthusiasts can like really remember that, oh, do you remember that 20C IPA or the, the Belgian IPA? Because I know you y'all in San Diego love your IPAs. Again, another yeah. one where it's like, you can have that, not quite my style, but I know we like it. Um, Thinking that too, you have mentioned, so we could come and see you in Asheville. We can come down to San Diego and see you there. Is there anywhere else that we could follow you? Do you have a Twitter handle, a LinkedIn that you'd like us to check out? Um, yeah, sure. Um, <clears throat> Twitter, well, we have an Instagram and a Twitter account. Um, both of those should be uh, at White Labs Yeast. And I'm sure there's a LinkedIn. I don't know it off the top of my head, but um Instagram is what we use most for social media. Um, so that's a good place to kind of follow what we're doing and anything that's upcoming. And our website, whitelabs.com. <laughs> and if people are interested in purchasing any of your yeast or trying it out, um, so I know you guys have a, a beer, a lot of beer and brewing yeast. Do you have other things for those who maybe may not want to drink beer? We certainly do. Um, we, if if people are looking for yeast specifically to try out, we have yeast for winemaking, um, specific for spirits, even though that's really not legal on a home scale. Um, we also have uh, kombucha scobies. So um, if anyone needs a scoby and wants to make kombucha, I know that's not gonna be Justin's thing, but, <laughs> but we do offer kombucha scobies and like alternative uh, fermentation organisms as well. So lots of different things. All of that can be found on our website. Um, if anyone wants to order direct, they can do that too. There's an e-commerce site that's linked directly from our website. And there's also a lot of information there. So if you just want to browse it and get more information on the different strains or what we do, or, you know, there's some white papers on there, there's blogs. So um, all things White Labs, whitelabs.com. Thank you so much, Neva. So happy to be able to talk to you and really just opening up all this stuff and information that I know I personally never knew about and I find so fascinating. Yeah, I feel like a whole world of microbiology has been opened up to me now. He's going to start homebrewing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, who knew? It's it's a very um, unique uh, place to be at uh, as a scientist. And, you know, it's it's been really a fun experience for me and, and kind of a growth journey, but also just kind of for me, you know, personally just really opened my world to what else is out there in the sciences besides, you know, just the normal traditional paths. So it's, it's been a, a fun experience for sure. Thank you, Neva, so much for joining us today. 
And again, if you guys want to reach out to uh, White Labs, follow all their socials, contact them on Instagram. All right. As a reminder, you can find Off the Bench Podcast at the ASCLS.org website or anywhere else that you choose to find your podcast. Come support our show, share it with others, and follow us on, you can follow me on Twitter at Flying Labra. And you can follow me on Twitter at uh, Warbler.works. Well, Warbler underscore works. I don't remember my Twitter handle. Still haven't made Galena hers. We're going to work on that. We'll get in her in here for next time, but thanks for so much for joining us. Catch y'all next time.